welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my guest today is Amos Jones, a independent legal scholar and executive director of the African American Trust for Historic Preservation, a Lexington, Kentucky-based organization. So welcome, Amos. It's so great to see you. Thank you, Professor Fry. It's good to be back in your presence at the illustrious University of Kentucky College of Law. Yeah, so Amos, I think I've known you for about seven years now. If I remember, we we met at the AALS uh, New Law Professors. Yes, uh, at the Association of American Law Schools. You were getting started here at University of Kentucky, and I think I was in my second year at Campbell University where yeah, I spent six yeah, years. Yeah. So I've, you know, it was such a pleasure meeting you back then. I've always been a huge fan of your work. I still remember meeting you for the first time. You told me all about your work on the history of African-American fraternities, which I thought was fascinating. And uh, I've always followed your, your scholarship since then uh, with, with great enthusiasm. And so it's great pleasure to have you here to talk with you about your work today. And I was, I was wondering if we could just start the interview by uh, you telling us a little bit about your trust for historic preservation, the kind of work that it's doing, and, and why you created it. Well, thank you. And I should say that the work with the African American Trust for Historic Preservation stems from my interest going back 20 years in the historic black churches of Lexington, Kentucky. My expertise in constitutional law emphases have involved religious freedom, mm. and particularly black religious freedom in the United States, and how that has animated a more egalitarian, inclusive social order in our country. Mm -hmm. The 14th Amendment, of course, was for black people, and it was about black people after the Civil War and the emancipation of black slaves, including in this town. But seven decades before emancipation, in downtown Lexington, Kentucky, a group of slaves decided to gather their own congregation and call their own pastor, Peter Durrett, and organize the Pleasant Green Baptist Church as the African Baptist Church at the time in 1790, before Kentucky was even a state. Wow. So African-American churches have taken advantage of the constitutional provisions of free exercise of religion and freedom of conscience and freedom of association right here in Kentucky. Now, you mentioned black fraternities. The scholar on African-American attorneys or fraternities who is a law professor actually is Dr. Gregory Parks uh, at Wake Forest University School of Law in Winston-Salem, uh, who is also dean of faculty development uh, at, at Wake Forest now, and who earned his doctorate from the University of Kentucky, his law degree at Cornell. So I must say that it's Dr. Parks, uh, who is the fraternity expert. I'm the church expert, mm. and that's why we formed this African-American Trust for Historic Preservation in the first instance to call attention to and to literally preserve the locations, the material uh, resources and real property of, and the freedom to hold on to these spaces that so many people are not aware are uh, historically significant. Monuments as they were to religious freedom, not just merely spiritual spaces. Mm -hmm. So maybe, so I, I remember the talk that you gave here at the University of Kentucky several years ago about the history of African-American churches in Lexington and, and how kind of fascinating and significant it, it really was uh, to Lexington history and to the history of abolitionism and the civil rights movement. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that history, just to sort of remind people of how important 
these institutions were and are. So my discussion keynoting UK law school's uh, Black History event uh, a couple of years ago was uh, a tribute to Kentucky as what I called a socially conscious progressive border state in order to be provocative. So I had to unpack what the heck I was talking about, how I get to a progressive socially conscious border state. And I systematically went through the history. To teach constitutional law is to teach American history. We can't understand a constitutional right to privacy without going through the women's movement and abortion rights. That's just the way it is. We cannot understand the substantive due process of the 14th Amendment and its application to states without understanding the Civil War and sectional crises of the 19th century and 18th century before that. So at the heart of my address to UK was the reality of these units of analysis. In my scholarship, not just black churches, but white religious institutions, universities, philanthropies, in the case of John D. Rockefeller Jr., who was a great American Baptist, endowed Spelman and Morehouse colleges in Atlanta as two of the best historically black colleges, two of the best colleges in the country. That was the white Baptist Lehman Rockefeller's money because of his core convictions of uh, liberty in the broadest sense. So if you examine congregations, particularly, I should say, congregational churches and Baptist churches, because these are direct democracies, there is no episcopacy. There is no ecclesiastical authority. There is absolute sovereignty first in the individual sphere. sphere. Nobody can make Amos's religious decisions for Amos. That's between Amos and whatever Amos's view of God happens to be. At the congregational level where we organize ourselves, nobody can impose on a congregation whom and whom not to call as the pastor or what public. My church in Washington, D.C., Shiloh Baptist Church today, is deliberating a constitutional amendment to abolish the 7.45 a.m. service and keep only the 10.55 a.m. service. And I'm not there for the vote because I'm here in Lexington to address my home church, the Pleasant Green Baptist Church, organized in 1790, and to deliver their church history on tomorrow's 28th church anniversary. But I did circulate my own views among the congregation on the vote because it's a ballot question and it's a direct democracy. It's not an autocracy or a monarchy. And what that means is my grandfather led the movement in central Kentucky when CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, was organized in the Undercroft in Pleasant Green Church with the help of a Unitarian white University of Kentucky professor, the late Dr. Abby Marlott of the Home Economics Department, who is in the Kentucky Civil Rights Hall of Fame. She drove my mother, a student at the University of Kentucky, from 1960 to 1962, uh, roughly, to the core meetings in the Pleasant Green Baptist Church. My mother and father then courted and married in 1963 and have been married for 55 years. This afternoon, I'll enjoy my mother's fried chicken <laughs> at our house, thank God. But the point is, as a unit of analysis, the white church and the black church, and the way they deliberate these questions can help us understand what the American people in the broader sense are thinking about constitutional questions, more so before the 50s when everybody went to worship in some way than now. It's harder to do now because most people 
are unchurched or don't attend church regularly. But in the 50s and 60s, Dr. King knew that if he would allow people to present themselves in protest and get hosed by devils with dogs and hoses at Kelly Ingram Park in Birmingham, that good people would look and call upon their convictions and say, this cannot stand. We cannot have black adolescent girls bombed to death in 16th Street Baptist Church. And so President Johnson said, we shall overcome. And we got the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yeah. And then Selma happened, and we got the, the Voting Rights Act of 65. And so now the constitutional actuations occur, and the federal courts of appeal are holding up the provisions of these great statutes. That's why I chose Professor Fry to, to look at church, white and black, deliberations as antecedent to our constitutional progress in this great republic. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and so... This incredible history that you've just given us. Um, I, I was wondering if you could also talk a little bit about the work you're doing today, preserving some of these churches and preserving this church history in Lexington itself. I mean, obviously the stories that you're telling are the first step in reminding people about what this history was and why it was so significant and why we should remember it today. But you're also doing a lot of work on the ground. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, on the ground. The African-American Trust for Historic Preservation was incorporated in September and October of 2017. Why then? Why Lexington? Because there is another historic church in whose chain of title to their property they acquired in 1872 is found Abraham Lincoln. And that is the great Main Street Baptist Church organized in 1862 by a Frederick Braxton, a disciplinarian minister who had been uh, leading a fold out of the first African Baptist church. 500 people left. Some historians have said it was over disagreements over the extent to which the church should support union activity in the Civil War. I haven't confirmed that. But the Main Street Church is set there next door to the Mary Todd Lincoln House for 146 years at the corner of Main and Jefferson Streets in downtown Lexington. And there's urban encroachment that is affecting their ability to provide the kinds of services that they would like to provide. And there was even a possibility that that church might have to uproot itself to accommodate some urban redevelopment. And in the United States, black neighborhoods and communities have endured urban redevelopment and the expense of that and the cultural upheaval of that for a long time. I'm looking out your office window here as we sit on the former property of the great Lexington Theological Seminary, now temporarily housing the UK College of Law as you build a magnificent legal edifice. And I'm looking out the window at Praltown. Praltown is a poor black neighborhood that almost got raised. 55 years ago, but a black pastor went to the city council and said, where are you going to put these people? And is it really necessary to destroy where they've been all these decades? For a street to be widened, for another building to be built that can be built somewhere else. And on the moral authority of that pastor, the bulldozer stopped and Praltown is right here right now. 
the ATHP was formed to have that kind of power to prevent the raising of black structures and institutions. And one of our signature programs that we invented is the emergency lecture. The first one happened at the Main Street Baptist Church. I delivered it in coordination with the incorporation exercises of the African American Trust for Historic Preservation. And I came to town to impress upon that distinguished congregation, which has many important civic and social leaders in this city and has for a long time, has always had impressive, effective clergy, to remind them of the heritage from which they come and to help them to resist programmatically, politically, and legally a potential bulldozing. And we believe that we are moving in the right direction one year later. So what we're doing in the African American Trust for Historic Preservation on the ground is providing educational and informational materials and petition enhancement. Main Street Baptist had a petition over saving their location before I was ever contacted. We put that on our website of athp.us where one can read that and sign the petition through a link. We made a documentary based on my lecture, but also on a tour of six antebellum black churches in Lexington, Kentucky, where blacks beyond Pleasant Green, who were in four denominations, African Methodist Episcopal, United Methodist, Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and of course Baptist, formed churches even when enslaved. So the trust is there to provide political support, intellectual support, and also media support so that these institutions and these what will become shrines and what will become living histories and what will become workaday operating institutions and continue as such, uh, these kinds of resources. And it's a great undertaking. Yeah. We have a lot of support from around the world. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it strikes me that the work you're doing in preserving these these buildings is especially important because they serve as a really tangible physical reminder of a history that I think a lot of people in Lexington, a lot of white people in Lexington don't want to remember or don't want to pay attention to. And that tangible sort of physical building tells a story about that history that a lot of people don't know about and haven't chosen to learn about. Well, and we've done a good job uh, in this town. We didn't wreck all of the black school buildings. Schools are another source. Back when I lived here as a journalist for the Herald Leader, Lexington Herald Leader, 16 years ago, I joined the Blue Rass Trust for Historic Preservation from 2001 to 2002 before I went to Columbia Journalism School and then on to Harvard Law School right after that. In my previous life, I was a news copy editor, and I served as a member of the Blue Grass Trust for Historic Preservation and in their plaquing program where historical buildings are designated a BGT plaque, and the requirement at the time was only 50 years old, um, I was able to make application for and present plaques to the Pleasant Green Baptist Church erected in um, 1931 at Maxwell and Patterson Streets and also the East 2nd Street Christian Church Disciples of Christ, the pastor of whom... Uh, his wife was, is the president of Lexington Seminary now, and she and he uh, met with me 17 years ago, and East 2nd Street was plaqued 
that they, that church was bought in 1880. It had been a Presbyterian church in the Constitution Historic District. Um, and so those buildings were preserved by the congregations. But the public has, has preserved things that embarrass white people. The old Douglas High School, which was the county high school for blacks, the segregated black school, which had a woman principal, Mrs. Van Lowe, who was brilliant. Old Douglas was purchased by the first African Baptist church, which relocated and built a beautiful stone church building there, dedicated in 1987 with a gorgeous pipe organ, stained glass windows, and a stone edifice right next to the old Douglas school so that everybody can be reminded this is where we were and what we had, mm -hmm. and this is what it can be today. And uh, First African calls it Kinesa First African uh, Apartments for the Elderly. Similarly, D uh, Dunbar, the old Dunbar High School, much of that, a portion of that building is preserved instead of bulldozed as the Dunbar Community Center. And uh, Dunbar School closed. It was a great public high school for blacks. Had a lot of distinguished alumni, including University of Kentucky Professor Emeritus, Dr. Doris Wilkinson, who with my late uncle Bill, both were alumni of Dunbar High, but they were the first two blacks to be awarded undergraduate degrees from the College of Arts and Sciences from the University of Kentucky. And Uncle Bill went on to become the first recipient of an honorary doctorate from University of Kentucky ever back in the early 90s. So Dunbar was a great school that produced great people who went on in some cases globally to lead in their fields. And it wasn't just the ministry and sociology. Um, why did the school close? Because black people bore the brunt of school desegregation. Taylor Branch, the great historian of the civil rights movement with his Pulitzer Prize winning trilogy, Parting the Waters, winner of the 88, I think, Pulitzer Prize for History, the first in the trilogy, reported in that 1988 book that when Brown versus Board of Education was announced in 1954 on the campus of Spelman College for elite black women, there was not a lot of happiness because those educated black women from fine families in most cases of the black professional class, which is to say the black elite, knew that they were not going to get the jobs that were going to be available. Because even though in the South, black teachers had more education than white teachers did in the aggregate, they're the ones who were the first to be laid off and cut. And it was a shame because the NAACP had equalized black pay. Before desegregation strategy, there was an equalization strategy. And Dr. Charles Hamilton Houston of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund had equalized through litigation the pay. So black teachers and principals were some of the most economically self-sufficient blacks in the country. And then when desegregation came, the white school board started closing the black schools and limiting opportunities for these black professor, black teachers. In this town, we have black teachers who came back down here from Columbia with a master's. You got more money to get a master's. My father's math teacher, Harry Sykes, had a master's from Minnesota, I think it was. He was a Harlem Globetrotter, stalwart member of the church pastored by my grandfather, Pleasant Green, and we had a voting campaign, and he was the first black elected to the city council. Uh, I think it was 68, 1968. Then soon after, he was mayor pro tem, because we did strategic voting. We voted in block and decided to just vote for one. You have four, four votes, use one and vote only for the black person. That's how you had to do it. So, so when Dunbar was being closed, the pastor, Pleasant Green, begged the school board as the lone voice 
please don't close this school. But if you're going to close it, make this public promise that the next school that you open in Fayette County for high school age people will be opened as Dunbar High School and will retain the traditions of this great school that, though segregated, though equipped with secondhand inferior resources, did not produce inferior people or results. Make that promise to us. And the school board made the promise. Jones died in 68 and Dunbar High School opened in 1990 with the same colors and the library and gym named after the great teachers from the old Dunbar. And it's one of the top high schools in the state easily. I'm a proud graduate of the new Dunbar High School, class of 96. My father is a proud graduate of the old Dunbar High School, class of 57. That's what you can do when you're thinking politically about the historical. And white people, wake up. You don't have to be ashamed. It has been the white church that has self-corrected and that has made good on these promises to people like Reverend Jones. That has restored in some cases. I was driving through the middle of Kentucky's campus, University of Kentucky, and there was Martin Luther King Drive. Most whites hated Dr. King when he got shot to death in Memphis. Now we love him and there are streets named for him because people eventually came to understand that here was a great American prophet who gave his life, his young life, that we all might have life and have it in a beloved community closer to the more perfect union envisioned by the white forefathers mm -hmm. that we celebrate equally and should. Yeah. So that's my message. Yes, white people don't want to talk about segregation. They don't want to look at our buildings. They don't want to see a black ghetto. And that's why it's the job of those of us who are uh, bilingual in racial cultural matters to serve as bridges. Mm -hmm. It is a burden. I, my voice sounds this way because I've talked it to death over the last year, trying to liaise the black Christian and white Christian, the black secular and black Christian and white secular and the Unitarians and the Jews and the Muslims. Somebody has to serve as a bridge and focus on these positive inflection points of our cultural and constitutional development. Mm -hmm. And I want to get into what that means mm -hmm. in, the, in today's tensions between civil liberties and rights and religious freedom, because that's where I have the answers mm. informed by these solutions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think this is a great segue, actually, for you to talk about the work that you do, not just as a legal scholar and as a leader of a preservation organization, but also as a constitutional litigator. And the important work that you've done representing people in, the, in that contest, context, especially in relation to religious liberties? All the while I was an associate professor of law, I also maintained a small DC-based practice. And what struck me was I did not set out to become an award-winning constitutional appellate litigator. My clients who made me somewhat well-known in the legal profession enough to where this year, Brian, they told me that I'm a top 100 lifetime achievement lawyer with Ty Cobb and Abby Lowell in Washington, D.C. And somebody told me, now it's time to die, Amos. You're 40, <laughs> and they gave you the Lifetime Achievement Award. But it happened by accident. 
my clients in these constitutional struggles, one of them all the way to the Kentucky Supreme Court on the ministerial exception, and what I call an appropriate scaling of the wall of separation. That is where you do still have civil rights, and you also have near-absolute church autonomy. You can have both. And it was my job in the briefing to do that. That, that client was a friend of my sister in Lexington. And it started in a matter that I thought would be resolved on letters. I didn't know I'd be spending the next five years overturning a bunch of erroneous Kentucky appellate court judges who didn't know the Constitution. But thank goodness there was a Kentucky Supreme Court that unanimously overruled everybody, and they were on my side of the question. Mm. Thanks be to God. <laughs> so we kept the Civil Rights Act and religious freedom and the right to bring a breach of contract case against a church institution. Problem solved. Another one was a black woman in my Sunday school class living in Section 8 housing in Washington, D.C., who was told that her Bible study could no longer meet in the community room because it was religious. And she said, but Brother Jones... They let them have bingo in the community room and a lot of other things. Can they do this? And I said, Sister Pugh, they can do it, but it's as illegal as heck and violates the First <laughs> Amendment. So we filed charges at the D.C. Office of Human Rights, and the D.C. Attorney General agreed with us on the retaliation question. I will just say this. Her Bible study is back and bigger, <laughs> and I'm glad I was able to help them with that constitutional problem to restore their religious freedom in Section 8 housing in the nation's capital, so much so that the next year they invited me to the first annual Bible study gala, and I was the keynote speaker. And that's where my constitutional advocacy comes in. Today we have attention, though. We know this. The hot-button question is, what about life post-Obergefell? What about the era of increasing recognition of the rights of uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender QIAA, LGBTQIAA folks, versus these claims on the part of religious institutions of a right to uh, limit, exclude, discriminate against, or otherwise not treat as of equal status persons within these categories, identifiable categories that are gaining increasing constitutional protection. And on the church's side and religious group's side, including conservative and, and, and orthodox Jewish folks, and Muslims too, and your more traditional Christians, the question of the check on what they think might be runaway judicial opinions that go beyond the protections of the Constitution. These rights are now in tension. And the question is, how far can either go? How far can religious freedom go in an era, era of, of increasing um, assertion of a more secular view of constitutional rights in, in a more secular culture? Mm. What Barack Obama has said is that whatever America used to be, my unit of analysis, 1950s church decision, and white folk getting convicted in their heart because they believed the same things and they knew they were wrong. Well, now people don't go to church as much or synagogue. Is it appropriate now to have laws that reflect a kind of moral sensibility that may be different from what it was? That's the question. And I think our answer is what my constitutional law professor taught, the great John Mansfield, God rest his soul, who taught church and state for years, 50-year professor at Harvard Law School, that we have a disappearance 
of a clear and, and predictable doctrine um, after a case called Locke versus Davy, um, where the uh, where a young man wanted to take his state scholarship money to a religious institution. And that was the last expression in spring 04, when I took church and state, of the U.S. Supreme Court on the wall of separation idea between church and state and the entanglements dilemma. And Locke versus Davy was decided that year, 03 to 04. And it further threw into question, what will the Supreme Court do? How are they going to interpret state separation of church and state, the new state interest in uh, affirming and protecting LGBTQIAA rights. Well, we were fortunate to discuss what John Mansfield called a disappearance of some clear and predictable way. It's going to be case by case. Mm. Facts change cases, as the great Grant Gilmore used to teach at Yale Law School. And we were fortunate in that particular case, Locke versus Davy, that came out when I was taking church and state, to have in the class my classmate, Joshua Davey, who was in my class at Harvard Law School and was got, got to comment for about 60 seconds on what he thought as the, as the name plaintiff against Governor Gary Locke, I think it was, of the Washington state of Washington. And uh, uh, he's a fine lawyer now and partner in a big firm in Charlotte. I saw Josh at, the ten -year, uh, at our 10-year reunion at, at school, and he's doing very well. Was not bitter at all about the loss, but... Uh, uh, the point is that my answer to this tension is, the moment you've all been waiting for out there in con law professor land, and you've heard it here first on Brian's podcast, the answer for America is found in the D.C. Human Rights Act of 1977. The D.C. Council operates as a city council and a state legislature, and passed under the Civil Rights icon Marion Barry, God rest his soul. The most comprehensive civil rights law in the country, the most progressive. 10% of human rights office cases lead to charges in DC. That is a huge percentage because most of them get tossed. I had a case at the Lexington, Kentucky Human Rights Office and the investigator told me he never had somebody have a complaint and have a lawyer. Wow. Yeah, they get tossed like I don't know what. But in Washington, a southern city with conservative black church folk, some cities are not church towns. Believe it or not, Birmingham, Alabama is not a church town. Washington is a church town. Mm -hmm. Atlanta is a church town. Dallas is a church town. Baltimore is a church town. But Washington, D.C. is a real church town. It's a southern city. They are black Christian. They are Bible Christians. That Human Rights Act of 77 has some of the most sweeping gay rights provisions anywhere. And there are religious exemptions all through it. Mm -hmm. And I tell you the truth, there is no city in this country better for LGBTQIA people or better to black people at the same time and the Christian folk. Mm -hmm. There's no issue in Washington. And I wish that our elected officials in Washington had the comprehensive understanding to take that act and, re and present it to the Congress mm -hmm. as the answer, the sustainable answer to this permanent tension mm -hmm. that pre-existed the gay rights church autonomy problem. Mm -hmm. 
it will fall to black people who have always been the unit of exploration and the plumb line of the reality of our First Amendment and 14th Amendment actuations, Professor Fry, to bring out these resolutions. So I'm calling on black people, black Christians, the black church, black professors to come forth and tell out these truths. Wow, that's uh, fascinating, and I, it never occurred to me. But I, you know, now that you say it, it, it seems perfectly, perfectly sensible, and it's really true about about Washington. And it it, it it leads me to ask another question, which I've would love to hear you talk more about, because you know, as I think is evident from a lot of what you said so far, you know, your connection to the Black Church is you know, really deep and strong. And many of my listeners may not realize that in addition to being a legal scholar and a lawyer, you're also a religious leader. And I was I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how your religious faith has informed your work as a legal scholar and a lawyer. So I'm, I'm a, a lot like Antonin Scalia and Alan Dershowitz both of whom I respect. In fact, I, I have, I'm a registered independent, so let me just put I have been a registered Democrat until 2017, and I'm a resident and voter in Washington, D.C. And so I put that out there uh, on purpose to, to inform what I'm about to explain. When Justice Scalia died unexpectedly, I stopped my 1L contracts class to impress upon them the transformative influence of Justice Scalia as someone who helped to establish and grow an important counterweight to what might have been a wholesale capitulation of the academy and that the legal academy, and that is to say even the bench, to a one-sided approach to constitutional theory, legal theory, federalism, and I would say democracy. Even though my favorite justices are people who are more like Stephen Breyer and Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Thurgood Marshall than certainly Rehnquist or Scalia, one must appreciate the value of point and counterpoint and of challenging one's views over and over. By the way, nothing is permanent. One reason I'm an independent and I'm a true moderate is there's a time for a tax cut, and there's a time for a tax increase. We do it in our households. You may be at a surplus, Brian, but when your daughter gets ready to go to college, you're going to run a deficit. You might mortgage that free and clear home or take out a loan to cover it. You run a deficit sometimes in order to later on extinguish it and have a bigger surplus. But in the political world, we want to act like it should all be left-wing all the time, permanently, or all right-wing. It's always a good time for a tax cut. That's stupid. What if we have World War II and have to pay for it again? You can't tell me that the most conservative people are going to come up with that money for the guns and butter and maybe tax cuts too. So you needed, at that particular point, I think, It was healthy to have 
a counter-developing Federalist society, and Justice Scalia's wit and his turn of phrases and his brilliant writing helped to make those lines of demarcation clear. So Scalia and Dershowitz are similar. They led what I call integrated lives. Justice Scalia's life reflected his basic philosophy on religion and law, his heuristic, if you will, pretty much literalist and originalist. Here was a Catholic person with eight children and one wife who gave one of his children, if you will, to the ministry, the priesthood, who basically took things literally, once the faith, once and for all, once for all delivered to the saints, not changing, and adaptable for everybody in the ultimate good of the world, an, a, a good that he believed was objectively ordained by a supreme being, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, all in one. That was Scalia's life. It was very clear. Alan Dershowitz, same integrity, same integrity, um, a fix-the-world, social justice, law, order, Jewish person, brilliantly prepared, seeking inclusion, seeking justice, being an activist and a gadfly where needed, boasting, I'm on the list of the unconfirmables. Because <laughs> people don't like these people who are not hobnobbing and, 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 and appeasing. He didn't come to do that. And so he, in similar style, uh, has helped to be the civil libertarian and the progressive, uh, on the progressive side. One reason I chose to go to Harvard Law School was because Dershowitz was there. And I was fortunate to take preemption with Alan Dershowitz. We had a seminar with 15 students called Preemption. And that helped him to write his book, Preemption, A Knife That Cuts Both Ways. <laughs> and I thank Professor Dershowitz for being a civil liberties and civil rights stalwart um, and being consistent. I embraced his arguments against the impeachment of Bill Clinton, and those arguments resonate with me on what the process should be for addressing the perceived problems with President Trump. The shoe on the other foot test. Mm. Nobody was better in condemning Bush versus Gore than Alan Dershowitz, who pointed out the reveal in Bush versus Gore is you can't find a conservative legal scholar to defend that opinion. Mm. So me, as an ordained Baptist, lame, uh, Baptist deacon, as the son, grandson, great-grandson, brother, brother-in-law, and nephew of Baptist pastors and ministers, and I am like Jimmy Carter, and I'm like Dr. Martin Luther King. I don't hide it. I'm out of the closet. I am a born-again Christian evangelical. And what that means is it's my job to, A, have a personal relationship with what I think is the greatest man who ever walked on earth, Jesus. And what does that mean to me? That I'm obligated to treat people fairly, to take care of the earth, to also proclaim my beliefs, and also as a good Baptist who believes in total religious freedom for everybody, not to impose those beliefs on others, not to allow a government to incorporate religious tests, 
because nobody was more persecuted than colonial Baptists under America at all, period. That's why Rhode Island had to be formed, because the Baptists were burned, stretched, and, and beaten in Massachusetts and other places like Connecticut that had the established church under the state law, the Congregational Church. I'm glad that the Congregational Church saw the light. You know they're real liberal now, but they weren't liberal when they were beating up the Baptists and throwing President Dunster, the first president of Harvard, a Congregationalist seminary, they threw him out of the presidency, in part, essentially threw the man out because he did not believe in infant baptism and became Baptist. So nobody understands the problem of an entanglement of church and state better than Baptists in America who had to go and open Brown University, which is the most liberal of the Ivy League schools, because it's Baptist. And I question Brown University, by the way. Why don't you find that anywhere on their website? Why do they hide the fact that they're the Baptist school? They still have portions of their commencement observances in the First Baptist Church in America's sanctuary at the foot of College Hill in Providence. Why are we hiding the, why are white people ashamed of the religious history of this country? If we didn't have Baptists complaining about their persecution, we wouldn't have the term wall of separation. You know where that term came from. It's not in the Constitution, Professor Fry. It came in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote when the Danbury Baptist Association in Connecticut, the Baptist group of churches that had been beat down by the Congregationalists, wrote and asked him, if you're the president, please assure us that we're not going to have in the national realm an establishment of a church, because that's been so bad for religion in general, not just us, but all religion. The second synagogue in America is the, 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 the synagogue at the temple at Newport, Rhode Island, because the Baptists made the first government in the history of mankind in Rhode Island that called for absolute religious freedom and freedom to be non-religious or a-religious. That had never been done before. So the second synagogue in America is at, the second oldest is at Newport, Rhode Island. So Thomas Jefferson wrote back, and assured the Danbury Baptists that the, quote, wall of separation between church and state would be preserved. And so that term made its way into federal common law, if you will, in our constitutional jurisprudence uh, into this, this, this great First Amendment we have. So for me, as a born-again evangelical, black Baptist, Martin Luther King, uh, Jones, Pleasant Green Church, person, I am compelled and constrained to do it the way I do it. And that is my right <laughs> in what I think is the greatest country in the history of mankind, made great by the overt involvement of black Baptist people just like me. Amen. <laughs> so this, I think, a perfect transition for... The other question I really wanted to ask you about and, and to hear your thoughts on, which is, you know, I've read some of your, I think, really profound and provocative work about what it means to be an African American, right? And what that experience is like and why it matters. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on that subject. The African American heritage is perhaps the most tragic and the most inspiring 
and the most influential heritage in the modern world. When the Chinese government was repressing the protesters at Tiananmen Square in 1989, the anthem of the American Civil Rights Movement, We Shall Overcome, could be heard in quarters of the Chinese protest movement. I tell people that black people in America, even in slavery, understood their autonomy. When the new St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church was erected in 1787, back when blacks and whites worshiped together, blacks and whites used to live in the same neighborhoods, in Lexington, in Georgetown of DC, and everywhere. This segregation thing is a new thing that came in. So it was a shame when the St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church was erected, interracial congregation, 1787. The black slave people and blacks were down on their knees at the chancel rail praying and were yanked up off of their knees and ordered to the balcony. It was a new day in the new church. And though these members had been instrumental in the establishment of that church and the growth of that church and the building of that edifice. They were relegated to second-class membership in the Church of God. And Richard Allen got up and walked out. And Absalom Jones, mm -hmm. and they together formed their own religious movements. The African Methodist Episcopal Church is extant, vibrant, and on the march to this day. Because black people understood that we may be in bondage down here, but there's a greater judge than the white racist judge on the bench. And that will be the ultimate judge on Judgment Day to whom we will answer. And what that did when we established our own churches, we established our own schools, and we established our own free thought before there was free thought. And why, why did that matter? I tell people we needed our own Motown. We needed our own Baptist denominations, our own colleges. Because if we left it to anybody but us and our unique African-American heritage, which is defined by slavery, defined by an evangelical Christian witness, what are the indices of culture, geography, language, and religion? The black experience historically has been an issue of Southern Christianity and of being related genetically to not just white people, but really the most productive white people. The black slave master didn't just rape any woman. Only people with money had slaves. And the slave masters who committed the rapes that led to the hybrid people that are the African Americans, it was Thomas Jefferson. So no wonder African Americans created things that were not that have not been created in Africa or the Caribbean. We had records, and a black person one day at a party put his hand on the record and started jerking at the record, and we started scratching. One day, a black person started just talking over the music, Professor Fry. Just, just speak over the music. Rap was born, and we know about spirituals those freedom songs based in Holy Scripture, based on the Hebrew Bible, where we develop our own 
coding for the Underground Railroad and our own songs of liberation. We didn't need liberation theology. We were living it and working it out in song long before we could even read and write. Soul competency was real. That's African-American heritage and culture. If we had left it to other people, they would have told Martin he couldn't preach because Yale Divinity denied Martin Luther King's application for admission. So we would have told Martin he couldn't preach, uh, Whitney she couldn't sing, and Ma Michael that he couldn't dance. But we had a Motown, and we had a Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, and we had an Ebenezer, and we had a Morehouse with help from John D. Rockefeller Jr. and white money. And I don't want to forget the people whom we have been in kindred spirits with, the, the Jewish people who funded the NAACP and started the NAACP, which was the legal roadmap to our ultimate formal equality. We couldn't have done it without that money and that systematic approach and Justice Brandeis, the great Kentuckian. So thank goodness that we have a unique culture of a melding of the best of the white and of black. The other thing is who survived the Middle Passage? Black American slaves got here literally through hell and high water, sold out by black Africans who knew when we went through those doors of no return what our fate would be, and they kept selling us out. I'm for reparations from Ghana. The Gold Coast, take some of that money and pay the black slave descendants. And of course, black Americans, I don't call it reparations. I call it a tax refund check. You know, my mother and father were forced into segregated black schools in Kentucky and put all their money into the white tax base and white people got all the advantage. They deserve a refund check with interest. That's our money. That's black people's money in there working for free. These insurance companies, uh, we now know that the modern accounting depreciation concepts were ingeniously worked out by slave owners. You got an 80-year-old slave. What value is a slave at 80 years old? You have to retire. So you depreciated their value on your accounting books. A brilliant female Harvard Business School professor has worked out that theory that it was the slave plantation slave owners who worked out modern depreciation concepts and tactics in accounting. Incidentally, stop calling slavery a holocaust. Slavery was a crime against humanity. But in a holocaust, you seek to annihilate and destroy the people. That's what the Jewish people faced in Germany. It was an extermination program. They were not exterminating blacks. They were always making more of us. They didn't kill the old slave who couldn't do anything. I call George Washington, George Washington, the father of our reparations. Why? Because when he died, he left an annuity to his trusted black body man, Will, his trusted slave, who accompanied the great George Washington, a very godly man, to the Constitutional Convention. And Will was left in President Washington's will, an annuity. What is that but a form of reparations from the father of our country who had emancipated the more than 200 slaves at Mount Vernon uh, when he died? So I tell you, black American heritage must be appropriately understood as a unique blood and soil reality. And when we understand that, you can articulate legal theories 
and political ideas that are actually quite unifying. We don't need African and Caribbean immigrants to tell us how to interact successfully with whites. We are interacted with whites. That's why we look the way we do. African Americans are phenotypically diverse because we're actually related to them. So who survived the Middle Passage? Only the fittest. And that's the last area of black contribution. We created modern, socially relevant, religious leadership. So we developed theology into new ways. We developed music into new ways and dance. And we changed the face of sports. It is well known that black American athletes are in the top. Not African athletes, not Caribbean athletes, except for running, <laughs> but black American athletes. And not only do we perform very well in most sports disproportionately, but we innovate the slam dunk. <laughs> we advance. Now there's a three-point shot. There's a shot clock. See, when we integrated the game of basketball, we got a better result. Everybody had to up their game. And the result is a revolution in sports and sports entertainment. Black creativity. How does that happen? Biodiversity. It does not mean that blacks are inherently better athletes. If that were true, we would have already seen this thing from, quote, purebred Africans. It turns out that racial diversity and race mixing, which has been encouraged at the founding of Berea College of Kentucky, by the way, where they encouraged race mixing in the 1800s, a college founded to educate blacks and whites together, and they wanted blacks to intermarry in the 1800s at Berea College until the state government in Kentucky passed the day law that stopped blacks and whites from interacting that way in school. So what it is, it's a natural occurrence. The more we get together, the more we come as one blood, African-American heritage, my Christian belief that we are all in one brotherhood and sisterhood, the better the outcome. I am an evidentialist at my core. That is my uh, hermeneutic, if you will. And, and we've seen what can happen when we uh, rip aside these barriers, talk to one another's humanity, and do the work of expanding the pie for all people at all times. That's what African-American heritage is, and it could not have happened without the reforms through slavery, Jim Crow segregation, etc. Wow. Well, Amos, thank you so much. This has been an incredibly powerful and, um, and influential interview for me, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you, Professor Fry. Thank you.